Hello and welcome to Sanity at the Movies Steamboat at the Movies Edition. We're doing two Steamboat-related movies. Really, we're doing one Steamboat-related movie, but we also watched the other one, which took us all of seven minutes, and we'll talk about that. We have watched, arguably, I'm trying to think if there are two greater or more popular or more influential Steamboat-related films, and, I can, and nothing is coming to mind. Perhaps Showboat, the, the two double adaptations of the musical. That's got a steamboat. There's probably other kind of southern plantation, of, antebellum uh, kind of things. Well, adaptations of Huck Finn. Adaptations of Huck Finn, yes. But to be fair, there's not really a universally accepted adaptation of Huck Finn. I've I mean, never seen. No, they're all bad. No, I have seen one. This is the Jonathan Taylor Thomas version. Right. That's oh, that's one of the. Be- <laughs> How did you know? Directed by <laughs> Stephen Summers of The Mummy no. and Scorpion King. No wonder it was fame. so poor. Yeah, no, that guy was a hack. I mean, I I kind of love those. Uh, Fraser I Mummy think movies. you mean is a hack. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, still alive. Nathan? Yeah, he hasn't just hasn't made anything. For, <laughs> they finally got wise. I think the last thing he made was GI Joe, one of those GI Joe movies. Yeah. Yeah, he only directed the first one. The guy, the sequel was directed by the dude who made, oh my goodness, the musical that stunk that we just saw last summer. The dude that made the musical we just, oh. Uh, uh, In the Heights. In the Heights. That guy, Chu. Chu, yes, yes. No. John Chu. There you go. It's John Chu. Yeah. That guy, he's the talented filmmaker, that guy. Actually, he is, yeah. He did Pretty Brides, Asians, whatever that thing's called. Yeah. That was pretty good. Steven Summers directed Odd Thomas in 2013, Nathan. Yep. (laughs) Your information is bad. Well, then, or I, you don't care at all. Knew that and <laughs> was not going to say it because <laughs> nobody cares about Odd Thomas. Neither do I. All right, but I could probably tell you most of Stephen Summers' filmography. He did The Jungle Book, really cruddy oh, adaptation of The Jungle what a Book. Terrible movie. He did the thing we already just mentioned. I think it was called Tom and Huck. Maybe that sounds right. I don't think it was called The Adventures of. That's the, Tom and Huck. Yeah, he did The Mummy. He did The Mummy Returns. He did Van Helsing. <laughs> Ooh, murderer. He did G.I. Joe Rise of Cobra, I think. Yeah. And am I missing anything? Uh, no. He, there's a movie in 89. No, 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 no. It was Adventures of Huck Finn. Okay. The Adventures of Huck Finn. Yeah. So what? Weird. There's something else that he produced called Tom and Huck. Yeah, yeah. That, that was like the sequel. They, they, they made more than one kind of Disney-branded okay. lame. Well. Catch Me If You Can. A 1989, Catch Me If You Can. Okay. I don't know what it is. Nice. Not the story of Frank Abagnale Jr. and Tom Hanks' pursuit of same, I take it? No, not about that at all. Well, folks, we're, we're glad you could join us on the Summers cast today, where we talk all things Stephen Summers. It's summertime. <laughs> <laughs> oh, duh, 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 duh. This is a great podcast. <laughs> so, your, your, your thoughts on The Mummy, the Brendan Fraser Mummy, Jake? I don't think I've seen it. You never had the pleasure? No. I've only seen Mummy Returns. You know, I've actually thought about it for what you, what, you know, staff this, picks for staff picks, <laughs> just because it's an old sentimental favorite. It's a total piece of garbage, but it's kind of fun. It's got a little bit of scanty clothing at the beginning, so I probably won't, but uh, you know, it was 99. We were young. <laughs> and foolish. <laughs> yes. A great year for cinema. You had The Matrix. You had The Mummy. You had a bunch of other things. A beautiful Mind. Beautiful Mind. No. no beautiful, I, I, that's just, just, just a joke, but it no. was around there. You had a bunch of really famous indie film. I think you had Fight Club. You had Magnolia. You had American 
whatever that thing is with beauty yeah with kevin spacey which is this dumb terrible overrated piece of crap which people probably don't like anymore because kevin spacey's been canceled anyway speaking of kevin spacey it's time for us to make some spacey on this podcast to talk about what we're actually talking about which isn't stephen summers not the 99 not nathan's childhood forget all that indulgent crap we're going to talk about a classic of the cinema a wonderful silent film. I believe this is our second silent film that we've done here on Sanity at the Movies. If I even said the name of the podcast, it's Sanity at the Movies. I'm Nathan. I'm your humble and obedient host. We've got Jake right there. Hey, he's up? the preach. No, he's the pastor hmm. who's a master of cinema. And yep. we've got Ben, the preacher who's a teacher of cinema. Hello. I'm we waving. Them. You can't see it. They're both in the his house today. They were excited about this Stephen Summers rant. They're both like signaling me like, we need more Summers. Keep doing, like, if you can imagine. Got a fever. Yeah. <laughs> the <laughs> only <laughs> prescription is more Summers. Is more Summers, yes. <laughs> uh, they, they love for me to talk about Stephen Summers, his career, what it's meant to me for as long as possible. They're signaling like, no, don't make us talk about what we actually, but I'm sorry, guys. We have to talk about both of the great Steamboat movies today. Even the longest summer doesn't last forever. That's what we always say. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Even the longest summer is there. I improve that. Well, yeah. So what's the full thing now? Even the longest summers don't last forever. Even the longest summers don't <laughs> Some last summers. summers. Even the longest <laughs> Stephen Summers don't last forever. Hey, if you want us to do the complete career of Stephen Summers. Doesn't then, matter. We're not going to do it. We'll never do it. <laughs> yeah. If you want us to do one of his movies, maybe maybe, maybe we maybe. could do like The Mummy Returns or Van Helsing or... Van Helsing. <laughs> Your murderer. <laughs> well, guys, the real reason we're here today is to talk about Steam Boat Bill Jr., the 1928 silent comedy film starring none other than Buster Keaton. We've talked a little silent comedy on this podcast before. My Was it my staff pick last year? Or this year? Early this year? Or... This sounds great, yeah. Great, yeah. Great, sounds great. Yeah, I think my staff pick was Safety Last, the Harold Lloyd film. And that was something that we watched and all enjoyed. I don't know. For new listeners, what's you guys' what individual histories with silent comedy? I don't think I saw any growing up. We saw black and white movies. We watched It's a Wonderful Life, especially. Old Christmas Carol. But I don't remember ever seeing any. No Keaton, no Chaplin, except I knew who Chaplin was. I didn't know who Keaton was. I think everybody knows who Everyone Chaplin knows is. Everyone knows who Chaplin is, yeah. So, no, I don't think I saw anything as a kid. But at some point, at some point in my 20s, for some reason, I just was, was interested in movies and started watching. I watched a Chaplin. I watched, what, City Lights? Mm-hmm. And then I watched Keaton, who I had a lot more fun with. So, so Chaplin was homework. Keaton was. I, I think it was because I had to watch The General in film class, which is another Keaton masterpiece. And I thought it was just awesome. Super fun, really cinematic, especially if you're in a film class and you're like, the professor's talking about, hey, no one had ever done this kind of composition before, or think about it from the perspective of the time. Suddenly you're like, oh, this guy's a genius. This is really cool. And then I wanted to watch his other stuff. Yes. And I would say of all of them, well, that's not true. I don't know. I, I, Lloyd and Keaton, I would say, actually both are less homeworky now. I think Chaplin might be the most kind of, mm-hmm. you, have, you have to do the math, like, well, this is what it would have meant to people. Then. Right. Which isn't to say there's not great Chaplin films out there or ones that would still speak to us. But I'd say we've come out of the gate on this podcast with two silent movies that actually still basically work. There's some places where you kind of have to put yourself in the mindset of... Mm-hmm. 
somebody back then, but but basically you can watch them and you'll still chuckle or mm-hmm. maybe even guffaw. And the stunts are still really cool. The stunts are still yeah. cool. The there's a story that is not like something that only people back then cared about. It's like safety last. Safety last doesn't have much of a story. It's boy must make good to marry girl. But I mean, we all relate to that, I guess. And this one has a nice. This is the reason we chose. The reason I chose Steamboat Bill Jr. because originally we were going to do a different one. But Steamboat Bill Jr. probably has the the best kind of emotional hook and not that you'll be like crying or anything if you watch it but it's got a nice little father son thing so jake your silent comedy history remember we only have an hour or two <laughs> yeah i don't have any my silent comedy history is filtered through the lens of looney tunes that's about all i got yeah oh yeah okay so true for me too i mean you could you could look at any number of things downstream but really that's sort of that's sort of really the i mean you have these films that clearly influenced every joke on every Warner Brothers. Yeah, the whole vocabulary of, I'm about to do something, I turn my back, something gets rearranged, and then I turn around to do the thing, but now things are set up in such a way that something hilarious happens to me. That's a silent movie, you know, a silent comedy Mm -hmm. staple. A lot of the gags are... (laughs) what would you call it? I'm sure there's a word for it, but reversals or uh, substitution, substitution gags, I think they call them. Yeah. Uh, you know, Buster Buster thinks he's going to walk across the plank between the two ships, but he turns around, one of the ships sails away, the plank is hovering in midair. He walks into air, yeah. He mm-hmm. walks, walks into the water. That's a very Looney Tunes. He's going to lift a mallet above his head and let go of it for a second and then grab something else and grab a cat's tail and whack somebody with a cat. Right. didn't happen, but that's like a... Yeah, that, that, that sort of thing happens all the time <laughs> in these kinds of movies. So yeah, I mean, Looney Tunes... Well, it, it, it's... These guys had to innovate visual comedy, right? Yeah. Because they didn't have... All the jokes had to be visual. All the comedy had to be visual. And so it's stunts, it's slapstick, it's all kinds of of how do we set up expectations visual, visually that we can subvert or, mm-hmm. or whatever. And, it's a lot of fun. They're all just sort of stacked on each other, but it's like a big Looney Tunes cartoon. And you see Bugs Bunny do these, these things over and over and over again with Elmer Fudd and, or whatever, you know. I'm trying to think what my silent movie comedy history is. I don't remember when I got into it. I mean, I've seen most of Chaplin. and I mean, you can't actually see most of a lot of this stuff because some of it just don't, doesn't exist anymore or doesn't exist in good copies. Hmm. So, so many of these people didn't take care to preserve their work because they were businessmen making a thing, a product that they put out. They weren't thinking too much hard about pros- prosperity. They were thinking about prosperity. They weren't thinking about posterity. <laughs> Lloyd, interestingly enough, thought a lot about posterity. And posterity has kind of left him behind because he kept all his movies in a vault for like 50 years. And so people through the sort of middle of the 20th century weren't that acquainted with the works of Harold Lloyd. But Chaplin and Keaton kept putting their stuff, kept kind of going out again, which means their films are much more degraded and it's hard to find good copies. And some of them only exist like, like what I mean is they keep the, they, they kept making new prints. Every time you make a print from film, you're degrading the original one. Like you can barely handle film of that stock without degrading it. So the more popular something is a lot of times, the more degraded it is where that whereas there's movies that nobody cares about that have come down to us in pristine condition precisely because nobody cares about nobody cares about them 
Yeah, exactly. So, but you can, if you're interested in watch, if you're, if you're just listening to this podcast and you want to watch some Buster Keaton, you've never seen anything, you want to watch Steamboat Bill Jr., which is the one I'd recommend starting with, then you can uh, sign up with your library card for a service called Canopy, which is kind of a lame, weird, liberal. Li- Canopy with a K. Canopy mm-hmm. with a K. You're going to have to like navigate plus a bunch, past a bunch of like lesbian, vampire. Art films. Art films. But if you go to their if you go straight to their classic films section, or just put Buster Keaton or something into their mm-hmm. search engine, you'll find all of his movies and nice restored 4K prints, and you can you can watch these films. Yeah, I think I think I actually did it the way that a film historian would recommend. I suppose I started with Chaplin, who's like the important guy, just the the popular guy from his time, the guy that everybody knows. Although it'd be interesting to see if to I wonder if Jake's children would recognize the silhouette of Charlie Chaplin. Like, do they know? I doubt it. It's just the hmm. mustache and the hat and everything. The bowler? The no, bowler. I, yeah. I, I, don't, I doubt it. Yeah, we might finally be far enough away from Charlie Chaplin that he's just... Yeah, people don't know. I mean, he Kids was don't know. He All was right, Mickey Mouse at one point. Like, he was that ubiquitous. Like, just to, you could tell him by his silhouette. The people all over the world knew who this guy was. He was huge. But I think, yeah, we're finally... We're getting to be on going on a hundred years from any of his big movies, and hmm. people just don't know him. All right, so the movie that we're that we are talking about today is Steamboat Bill Jr., one of the great silent comedies. We're also going to talk about Steamboat Willie. I said it was a Steamboat Two first. Steamboat Willie, of course, is the Disney first animated feature with sound. It's you've, you've seen the clip a thousand times of Little Mickey Mouse tooting the horn on his steamboat and they put it in front of a lot of disney films nowadays right? yeah exactly and he's whistling the little <laughs> i can't whistle but that thing so we'll talk a little bit about that because it is psychotic but let me introduce our listeners to buster keaton arguably not just the greatest silent comedian arguably the great one of the greatest silent filmmakers of them all, arguably just one of the greatest filmmakers, period, and one of the greatest athletes, one of the greatest, he's just a guy to watch, like, you don't have to care about basketball to watch Michael Jordan and just see, oh, this guy had something that transcended basketball, just, he just had greatness, you don't have to care about Renaissance art to see Da Vinci had greatness. <laughs> Buster Keaton's like that, He's like, he, he really is like that, he is... A superb athlete, a superb filmmaker, a superb technician, and I would compare him. I was trying to think who to, who to compare him to, and mm-hmm. I would com- if you, if you wanted to say he, what kind of artist he was, he's more of a Michelangelo or a Da Vinci than he is, say, a Picasso. And what I mean by that is, if Picasso is a guy with periods and moods and things that he's intuitively trying to sort of feel his way towards. That's how a lot of filmmakers are. Like they're intuitively trying to do different things and discover things and try things. But there's a different kind of artist, a different kind of filmmaker who is more akin to like a Michelangelo or a Da Vinci. Someone who says, I'm just going to do one thing and do it so well with such technical virtuosity that pure technique will become art. I'm just going to keep refining and refining and refining the same thing. I'm not. My goal is, is never shifting. 
The goalposts are always the same. And the reason I, you know, like I was, I saw a tweet recently about Michelangelo's statue of Moses and there apparently Moses in the statue, his little finger is moving a little bit and there's this muscle on his forearm that is like, that is poking out. And apparently it's a muscle that really only is visible if your little finger is in that exact position. Is in that exact position. So it's like that understanding of biology, that understanding of art, that understanding of human physique, of anatomy, it's like... And I'm going to show it off. And I'm going to show it off. That, that sort of technical mm-hmm. virtuosity honed and honed and honed and honed until art. Mm-hmm. Well, that's Buster Keaton, basically. I don't want to oversell him because you watch it and you'll be like, oh, it's a dopey, silent guy falling on his face. But I also want to tell you that when you watch this dopey, silent guy falling on his face, what you're seeing is technical virtuosity honed and honed and honed until mm-hmm. it becomes... Art. And I think this is probably one of the easier movies to see that because when you get to the end, there's some crazy expensive, crazy engineered. Very indulgent. Very indulgent in, a, in the best way. It's a stunt sequence. Not dissimilar to, in its own way, to Harold Lloyd scaling the building mm-hmm. in a Safety Last. But more ambitious in the sense that once they started blowing this set to bits, it was not going to be like... Couldn't get it there back. Was, there was one take for this. Right. And exactly. they had to nail it. Well, and there's stunts where there's one take, and if Buster takes a step to the left, he's going to die. Namely, the famous, which a lot of people, if you've seen anything from Buster Keaton, just like the famous image of Harold Lloyd hanging from the clock, if you've seen anything, you know that. Well, the, fam- the most famous thing that Buster Keaton ever did that's been copied now a million times is he stood in the exact location so that a building's wall could collapse around him and the window could be right where it would fall over him. You know what I'm saying, listener, right? I'm not mm. describing it well. Yeah, the but, facade falls down and he stands where the window is going to fall so that he doesn't get hurt, crushed. Right. And that's just a stunt where Buster Keaton figured out- He stands out, with his back to it. Right. And as a performer, he doesn't even flinch. He's just, the whole idea is that the character is kind of out of it and the character is like, where am I? What's going on? And then this facade mm-hmm. collapses and he just happens to be standing in the exact right place so that he doesn't die but that meant buster keaton had to stand in the exact right place so that he would not die they, they could not practice it they did not wish to practice it because they did not wish to demolish an expensive set so they just engineered it perfectly buster keaton did the calculations himself and then he said all right i'm gonna stand here and i trust my calculations to pay off apparently there was a nail put where he was supposed to stand yeah so Buster Keaton is, a, is one of the greatest comedy technicians of all time, and he had such a pure technical mas- mastery that it sort of elevated itself into inspiration. Most critics would consider him to be the artist of the big three. Chaplin was kind of maudlin and sep- sentimental and really wanted you to like him. Keaton was like an everyman populist, or er, sorry, Lloyd. Lloyd was an everyman populist guy just making entertainment. Oh, let's scare the people. I got to climb the building. Keaton's just in his own weird world of I'm this earnest guy that wants to accomplish something and craziness is happening around me. And um, there's, do you, I have an Ebert quote that I found. Yeah. Do you have it? You're not going to, okay, I'm going to steal your thunder. So Ebert says, the greatest of the silent clowns is Buster Keaton, not only because of what he did, but because of how he did it. Harold Lloyd made us laugh as much. Charlie Chaplin moved us more deeply, but no one had more courage than Buster. 
In films that combine comedy with extraordinary physical risks, Buster Keaton played a brave spirit who took the universe on its own terms and gave no quarter. Yes, I think the reason a lot of critics and a lot of people respond to him now is he has a certain kind of modern existential sort of, yeah. uh, well, here I am. The world is falling apart around me and I'm just kind of gazing stoically at it and doing my best to save my girl, save my dad, get what I want. But the the universe is absurd. <laughs> <laughs> the only person to pick up the mantle, Tom Cruise. Yep. Well, he, he really is, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we have, by and large, in the days of Marvel, we have lost the the joy of going to see a movie and knowing that somebody's really doing something. And Tom Cruise has made a lot of money recently by giving us back that feeling. That of, sense of we're actually watching somebody take a risk and actually do a thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. 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 Well, so Ebert also says, I think this is interesting. I didn't I didn't know this before I got on Wikipedia for this episode. He says, in an extraordinary period from 1920 to 1929, he worked without interruption on a series of films that make him arguably the greatest actor-director in the history of the movies. So that's what Ebert thinks. Yeah. It? I mean, Ebert's probably would say that about all kinds of people. Although actor-director, I mean, how many Actor-director is pretty yeah. specific. That's pretty specific. Yeah. He is the person that Jackie Chan always names. If you need some kind of a semi-modern, now not even modern analog, Jackie Chan always says, the guy that I saw that really inspired me for what I want to do specifically. I mean, Ch- Jackie says all the, the big three, but Keaton specifically. <laughs> I mean, Jackie Chan should say that. Warner Brothers should say that. Vince McMahon should say it. Yes. Like at a certain point in, while we were watching this, you said, this reminds me, uh, this is like a cross of gymnastics and WWE. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's a, that's a, those are the kinds of skills that Buster Keaton had, only more so because he does these tremendous falls and stunts. And Yeah. Well, we should talk about his life a little bit because it is interesting. He was born in October 4th, uh, on October 4th, 1895, which of course puts him right at the dawn of cinema, like literally, I think the Lumiere brothers invented cinema basically in eighty in ninety four, I wanna say. Edison, Lumiere brothers, people like that were working on inventing cinema while Buster Keaton's parents were working on inventing him. His name was actually Joseph Frank Keaton. He was born in Piqua, Kansas, to parents who were vaudeville performers who were currently with the Mohawk Indian Medicine Company, also known as the Keaton Houdini Medicine Show Company, which performed across the country and sold patent medicine. And they were working with Houdini. Yes, that Houdini, the Houdini. And supposedly the story goes that Houdini named Buster Keaton because when Buster was six months old, he fell down a flight of stairs and got up and wasn't hurt. And uh, Houdini said, boy, that's a real buster. And so his parents decided that that would make a good nickname for him. But uh, Buster's mom and dad were performers, vaudeville people that worked with Harry Houdini. And so Buster's just born. Kind of people who would understand that Buster would make a good stage name and that a great legend would be that it, Harry Houdini himself came up with it. Right. Most uh, <laughs> historians say Houdini wouldn't have been in his life at that exact time and blah, blah, blah. But you can, certainly find, you can certainly find Buster Keaton telling the story, so he wasn't above telling the story. He learned how to take a fall from by the, by the, by the, he was doing vaudeville performances with his parents by the time he was three. He was being thrown around the stage. I mean, it was just what we would call today child abuse. I mean, there's no other 
way that we would begin to understand it today. He had a little handle built into the little suit that he wore so that his dad could more easily kind of pick him up by the scruff of his behind <laughs> and, and toss him across the stage and, and be, kind of be slung around. And it was just, that was the showbiz life that he was born into. It was, I have a quote here. It was the roughest knockabout act that was ever in the history of the theater. People tried to copy it and got really hurt. <laughs> like it was crazy. I mean, this guy was just like the, the Spartans were bred for war. This guy was bred for physical comedy. He was eventually billed as the little boy who can't be damaged. And he never had a chip on his shoulder about it. He always said, it's just a matter of technical execution. It looks like my dad's really abusing me, but I knew how to take a fall. I know how to break my falls. I knew how to do all that stuff. And so not a big deal. He said, uh, I have a quote here, the secret is in landing limp and breaking the fall with a foot or a hand. It's a knack. I started so young that landing right is second nature with me. Several times I've been killed if I hadn't been able to land like a cat. Imitators of our acts didn't last long because they can't stand the treatment. And that is readily apparent in the movie that we watched today because he takes incredible falls and flips and things where you see like his neck bend in weird ways. It's like, it looks like you could die or break your neck doing all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. And Buster Keaton is just the best there's a gag in this one, just a really simple thing where a guy pulls a hose or a rope or something out from underneath right. him, yeah. and he does a flip and kind of lands on his head, but it's just, just a big, exaggerated, goofy, dangerous-looking flip. So that's early Buster Keaton. He and his father discovered that like he would be, he'd be in these complicated, violent gags where his dad would throw him across the stage, and so he'd like go flying into a, a bass drum and then he'd come out and he'd be waving and smiling and and for some reason when he did that the audience felt bad for him they didn't see the joke i don't know you could maybe we could figure out the psychology of the audience here mm -hmm. when he came out with a stoic little expression on his face they thought it was hilarious and they didn't have any problem with it and they didn't think it was child abuse or anything like that they loved it so as long as he had this solemn if he doesn't break character. Yeah, it's uh -huh. not breaking character. If he breaks character, then he's acknowledging that there was tension and risk. Yeah, it's, it's like, I'm going to apologize But if he doesn't break character, then it's all, the act is still in play, and this is all just, you know. <laughs> it's a little cartoon step. boy that's yep. able to be thrown by his dad into a bass drum. <laughs> well, this is just how it is, folks. <laughs> yeah. Part of the joke. So Buster Keaton, I guess I didn't say this at the top, I probably should have. He's called the Great Stone Face because he's famous for never smiling in his movies. That's not technically true he does smile people also say he never shows any emotion he shows plenty of emotion in the movie we just watched you know when he's sad when he's dejected when he's kind of daddy hungry when he's in love it's all there but it's just played it's underplayed and it's played stoically and he usually never smiles i think he at a certain point he never he stopped smiling altogether so in 1917 buster keaton meets roscoe fatty arbuckle at the talmadge studios in new york city where Arbuckle was a very famous comedian. comedian, And has either one of you guys heard of Fatty Arbuckle? I have heard the name. I don't know why. I've heard the name too. If you've heard the name, it's because he was involved in a really famous scandal of his time. Like their, their OJ trial, their whatever you want to compare it to. It was this huge scandal where he was accused of rape. And the evidence seems to point that, to the fact that he did not commit rape. He was eventually actually exonerated. But it destroyed his career. I mean, it was equivalent to like when we were growing up, 
Cosby was the man. Cosby was going to be one of the 20th century like guys that we were all going to remember as a great comedian, whether you liked him or lumped him. Like he was a he was on the Mount Rushmore of yeah comedy. And who knows if our kids will even know who Bill Cosby is? Like he's just yeah. he's just going to be erased. Fatty Arbuckle, kind of the same thing, except for in Cosby's case, I think we can say that here's more than just yeah, it wasn't just hearsay. Uh, the problem, one of the problems that Fat Fatty Arbuckle ran into is that the evil uh, newspaper baron, William Randolph Hearst, the inspiration for Citizen Kane and all that, Hearst, yellow journalism, that guy decided that he could sell a lot of newspapers by dragging Arbuckle, dragging Arbuckle, which is exactly what he did. So Chaplin actually stood up for Arbuckle, but uh, Buster Keaton stood up for Arbuckle because they were great friends. They'd done a lot of films together. Arbuckle probably would be another guy we'd be talking about, like Chaplin, like if, if, if his career just hadn't been sunk, but nobody even barely remembers who he is. Anyway, Buster Keaton got his start with Arbuckle, basically met him and was a real natural and very quickly figured out how the camera worked, just, just seemed to have an intuitive grasp of all this thing, quickly rose to become Arbuckle's director and basically his entire gag department. Buster Keaton was just great at coming up with these physical gags and things like that. And so he appeared in a bunch of shorts with Fatty Arbuckle and then, of course, stopped appearing in shorts with Fatty Arbuckle because Fatty Arbuckle got canceled. And that is when Keaton struck out on his own, had that wonderful run of creativity that Ben mentioned from the Ebert, uh, from the Ebert coast, quote where he did these really inventive two, two real short, you know, 20 mm -hmm. minutes, reels about 10 minutes, 20-minute comedies. One Week is one of the best ones. If you want to watch that, that I would recommend. It's about a newlywed couple that has to build a house, and it's very silly and a lot of fun. <laughs> and, and then he got into making these full-length movies, like The General, like the one we just watched. What was it? Uh, Steamboat Bill, Bill, Bill Jr. Steamboat Bill Jr. In the, in the mid to late 20s. And he never did as well in his time as Chaplin, as Harold Lloyd. His movies didn't really make money, at least not the way that he wanted them to. And so he eventually got demoralized and signed a contract with MGM in the late 20s, which is just the worst thing that he could have done because they had this, this assembly line way of making comedies and he just lost his freedom. And he's one of those guys that needed to be the director, needed to, needed to do everything himself. I mean, he had people that helped him write gags and Mm -hmm. technicians that worked for him but he really was the whole show and he did not thrive in an environment where he had to be a cog in the machine that happened and then the talkies happened 1927 the jazz singer and then talking stuff comes in and he he really didn't thrive with sound either he plays such a stoic kind of character that doesn't need words that it just didn't make sense and so he has kind of the saddest life of the big three, Harold Lloyd managed to manage his career well, was kind of retired gracefully, you know, was kind of an old Hollywood statesman who had lots of money and sort of was an industry figurehead after, after talkies came in, knew, knew well enough to not push too far into after he tried a few talking movies. Chaplin obviously was an institution. Everybody loved him. He had some problems. He had to leave America. He was accused of being a communist. He was accused of being a child rapist both both things probably somewhat true but chaplin eventually got his oscar and came back and kind of was a beloved figure when he died buster keaton 
ended up doing like educational films. You know, he'd get work where he could. He wrote some, he, he was a gag writer for the Marx Brothers for a while. And then he, uh, you can find him in things like Beach Blanket Bingo. He's in his 60s, like these, these beach party movies where he's, he's like standing off to the side and they're like, hey, it's Buster Keaton. And he's like a fat old guy, but he's still doing Pratt Falls and stuff like that. He never again was given the power or the money to make the kind of genius cinema that he was making in his heyday. He did get an honorary Oscar in 1958. He did, he did get, his movies were finally beginning to be reassessed and find their place in the canon when he died. There's a story which I think Roger Ebert might mention in the article that Ben has pulled up where there was a tribute at the 1965 Venice Film Festival and everyone's clapping and you know somebody said to him buster isn't that nice and he says he said the applause is nice but too late so much like the melancholy character that he played he had a little bit of a melancholy life one fun anecdote i found kind of fun it dark but fun is that he was actually institutionalized as an alcoholic at a certain point but they couldn't keep him in a straight jacket because he used to work with houdini so he knew all the tricks <laughs> so he kind of recovered he kind of had a dark period after his movies went out of style and then he kind of found his feet but he never got the kind of acclaim or the kind of love that, that he has now when most people consider him to be one one of the greats i mean he's, a, he's he's not unlike orson wells in that he got to do citizen kane and then he spent his life kind of paying for it and never getting to do another one at least on that level with that kind of freedom and that kind of money but everybody remembers citizen kane i mean it's not really like citizen kane because orson wells was well known and well loved in his time and got to see his work reevaluated in a way that Buster Keaton didn't. So that's Buster Keaton's life. Yeah, the, his method was that he'd plan about 50% of his movies, and then he'd develop about 50% on the day. Just go out there, get a girl, get a policeman, get a, an adversary, get something, just like, what can we do with this stuff? Uh, you'll notice that his gags are often accomplished in one shot. He doesn't like to cut. He wants you to be able to see him a little bit like Fred Astaire with dance. He wants to be able to you, you to see the beginning, middle, and end of whatever his Pratt fall is. And he was, I think he violates this rule a lot, but his rule was we want to make things as realistic as possible. We don't want to go too abstract, like too ridiculous, too this could never happen. It all has to be plausible, which is a little bit different than some of the others. He was a great stuntman. He took some huge falls. He broke his neck once and didn't even realize it in the movie that we were going to watch today, but didn't, which was Sherlock Jr., which is another wonderful Keaton short. Yeah, I think that's, I don't know, Ben, anything you wanted to add? No. You're a big Buster Keaton fan. <clears throat> I am. It's. I have a lot of movies to see, though. I've... I think I've seen his big four, which are the general Sherlock Jr., Steamboat Bill Jr. I mean, I know I've seen all these, but the cameraman. I think I've seen the cameraman. I just can't remember. Yeah, I'm not sure whether I've seen that one. I'm pretty sure. It's coming back to me. Apparently, so that was that was the first movie he made for MGM and the last where he had creative control. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, And then he just really lost it. He, yeah, I would recommend the general. I would recommend. I would recommend you start with this one. Then I would recommend you watch The General. Then I would recommend maybe Our Hospitality, which has this wonderful waterfall stunt where he's on the edge of the waterfall. His, the girl is about to go over the waterfall, and he swings over the waterfall and grabs her just before she 
plunges to a wa- her watery grave. It's pretty amazing what, what both him and the girl do in that scene. And I think it's on a set that he constructed, but it's still like rampaging water over big height that he has to swing and the timing and everything. It's amazing. And in three ages, he does this fall from a building where he this is no fun to just hear me describe these things, but he, he really was a spectacular stuntman, a spectacular athlete mm-hmm. and do, did more of this stuff more realistically than I think anybody before or since arguably, except for Tom Cruise, of course. So that's Buster Keaton. We watched Steam Built Boat Bill Jr. I'm a wager a lot of our audience members have not seen this movie. Does one of you guys care to describe the, the complicated machinations of the plot of Steamboat Bill Jr.? Oh, Steamboat Bill is an old river tramp, as he's called. Steamboat Bill Sr. I'm sorry, did I say Jr.? Steamboat Bill Sr. is an old river tramp with a crummy old steamboat who has a rival who doesn't like him, who's rich. And Steamboat Bill's son, who he hasn't met since he was a baby, comes home and he's this foppish little guy with a dumb mustache who doesn't know anything about working with his hands, etc. He's in love with a girl who it turns out is the daughter of Steamboat Bill Sr.'s rival. Mm. And things just happened from there. We were all so bowled over by that plot twist that, that we yeah. like flipped backwards <laughs> out of our couch, Buster Keaton style. Right. Yeah. Our necks turned at an unnatural angle, but we were fine. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I mean, and then stuff, bad stuff happens. The dads don't want the two to get together. Steamboat Bill Jr. is really not good at steamboats. No, he's not. <laughs> he's really not good at steamboats. And uh, thankfully... The dad gets arrested and Steamboat Bill Jr. gets a chance to save him. And then there's a storm and Steamboat Bill Jr. gets a chance to save everyone using his now incredible knowledge of operating his dad's steamboat with a, with a complicated rope system that he devised. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. My question is, why does he power up? It feels like ritual divorced. <laughs> <laughs> from... nah, he just becomes Buster Keaton at some point. That's right. He's, a, he's like a foppish idiot for the first half. And then, and then at a certain point, he's like, now I'm Buster Keaton, the Buster Keaton character <laughs> that you know and love. And yeah. And the, and the through line in the movie is that he never stops like just trying to do whatever it is he's doing. Always with the same attitude, apparently. You want me to try to run this steamboat? Okay. Yeah. I mean, Buster Keaton's the guy, he just always is stoic and earnest and trying to accomplish things in a simple way. And then reality is always arrayed against him and humorous things happen. I don't know. Did you guys enjoy this movie? Was it, was it homework? How much did you have to sort of uh, put yourself there or, or did you just like it and what? It's just pretty fun. Yep. Ben, favorite gag? Man, I'm not sure. I I think it might well yeah, I the the whole storm is so fantastic and there's so many gags one after another that it's it's hard to I I'm really not sure. So but, the major set place of this movie and what it's most famous for is like a hurricane at the end where they have all these I guess wind machines going. I don't know how they did everything. Some of it you can see how they're doing, but the town is just blowing to pieces. Buildings are blowing over. It looks really expensive. I'm sure this movie was yeah. it's one of the reasons Buster Keaton's movies didn't make money is cuz he spent a lot of money on them. I think The General is actually the most expensive silent movie, period, because they crash a real train, throw it over a bridge, and this yeah. movie has similar things where <laughs> I'm sure a lot of it's just facades that they built for the movie and stuff, but they're blowing down houses. They're knocking down walls. It's all pretty spectacular. And Buster Keaton is... Sinking boats, crushing piers. Yeah. Managing to have 
some semblance of a house fall out of a sky and hit the ground as it shatter as it hits the ground. Yeah. There's a scene where he grabs Carrying onto trees a, a, a on a tree. train crane around the Yeah. Yeah, I think maybe the scene where he grabs on I part of it is that it just becomes like this cinema dream world of stunts and things. Mm-hmm. It's like he grabs it it is like your dreams of being in a hurricane basically. Yeah. That's how I felt watching it years ago for the first time. I remember, you know, when he grabs onto that tree and the wind picks up the tree and starts whirling it around and around through through a field. It's just like, what is this? Like, this is awesome. <laughs> this is, it's just... It's this, the Wizard the, of Oz. It's, I was yeah. just thinking the same thing. It, it's yeah. got that kind of fairy, fairy tale sort yeah. of feeling of... It, but it just has it in a sense, uh, I don't know, it's not like, it doesn't feel like someone making a, a goofy fantasy movie. It's just, I, you said he's the most... Did you say this or did I, was I just thinking this? He's the most abstract yeah, no, of I, those guys. I don't remember, but yes. Anyway, he is the most abstract of those guys. And there's something about it that just feels very like this stump just belongs here. The wind's going to pick me up and carry me along. There's this weird internal dream logic to this whole storm scene. Like he even he goes into a, a, a like a vaudeville theater and there's a... There's a dummy there, there's that a, keeps th- spooking him. There's a dummy that keeps spooking him and then there are these... He starts falling into these random magic tricks that are on the stage before that facade collapses too, and it all feels very—I don't know. It's—it's it's just, it's just—it's—it's—it's it's, it's like this is a film about smoke and mirrors. Just to emphasize that point, here's some smoke and mirrors. Here's here's some here's. Let's pretend that I'm doing a stage show for you right now, and you're just and instead of the rest of the movie with the storm, you're just watching me on a stage doing pratfalls and magic tricks. Just. He'll just stop and give that to you. Right. But it's just really him. fun. Yeah, just a man and a camera. I, yeah, I don't know how else to describe it. I feel like... Yeah, I mean, I'm avoiding well, words. And wait, there's a, there's a next level or a layer to that whole thing where he's like, I'm showing you the tricks. I'm, I'm showing you behind the curtain of the tricks of yesterday. <laughs> right. But I am not going to show you <laughs> any of the tricks. Uh, you're not going to see anything up my sleeve. Right. 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 In the process. So yeah. I'm, I'm dismantling... Yeah, I'm changing the game. Like it's a statement piece mm-hmm. to have the yes. the magicians act there, yeah. and to show behind the curtain, to show the mirror on the trap door. Oh yeah, you were you, you remember when you used to go to the state, you know, to the theater and be amazed by these idiot mu- magicians like Harry Houdini right. or whatever. Like here, here, here's all the apparatus behind all of their <laughs> tricks, and it's a game compared to what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And aren't you amazed by now? I'm going to fly on a tree. <laughs> figure that one out idiots <laughs> yeah it's yeah yeah you're right he is he gets pretty meta there's still <laughs> things that i haven't figured out i mean i'm sure they're just using cables and stuff but like his bed is just blown across he's in a hospital bed for whatever silly reason listener but the bed is just blown across a field or something like that and I, you know i can think of half a dozen simple ways to do that but i'm not sure which one they used or how they right. did it or why there's some scenes where it feels like a crane dropped a house down, maybe. But ugh, a lot of the magic is still just magic. And I was trying not to say anything really pretentious while you were talking, Ben. Like, it, it does do that movie thing where it, it it reduces all of this stuff to just, like, pure iconography. Just... Yeah. It's become archetypal somehow. It's just man in storm. That's right. <laughs> well, and you, how many Looney Tunes episodes or whatever have you seen? that are just riffs on that scene where you're leaning into the wind and it's 
mm-hmm. pulling up the floorboards and bending everything over double and things flying at you. Things are flying. flying. It keeps yeah. on shoving you back and you get up again and then it pushes yeah, all you further down the like, street. Yeah. But yeah. this was just like the real life practical stunt version of, of that. Right. Right. And I, I don't know that anyone knows how to do that kind of thing in live action now. Like the slapstick that we get now, you know, like in an Adam Sandler film or something is so lame and so unintentionally violent feeling. Even as a kid, the Home Alone movies always felt more violent than they did. I mean, I laughed when the two robbers got it, but I I loved Home Alone. I'm not, I'm not saying it didn't work on some primal level, but there is something about just the silence of it all or something that allows these things to sort of be more abstract and you're, you're not worried about like... Oh no, a hammer's dropped on his foot. I feel bad for him. So many things that nowadays you think of as, well, that would only actually work in animation. You need the exaggeration. You need the distance that animation gives you. Mm-hmm. Buster Keaton can just do that because he's such a a weird clown-like sort of half physical, half spiritual creature that <laughs> he can just get away with this stuff. Yeah. Jake, favorite gag? It's, I don't know, it's kind of hard to say it. My first thought was just uh, the first time he ends up sort of trying to escape the how the the riverboat and climbing down and just over the balconies and things. But then he does a lot of great park parkour kind of stuff. Yeah, where it's like it's really impressive how stupid he makes himself look and how controlled he's being. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I think that the real answer has to be the house gag. Yeah, because I mean, it's the one that survives and it's. It's just really risky, and you know it's risky watching it. Like, there's just like, there are no strings attached. And that's the way that the whole, or even just if you wanted yeah. to step back and see how many of these sequences are just single, single shot sequences that they had to get it right. Or, and maybe they got, maybe there were like 10 other sequences that they set up that they, that didn't come off perfectly that hit the cutting room floor and they, they overdid it or whatever, but right. still the amount of destruction and chaos and this could all, this joke could only happen one time. Like that was a lot of fun. That was really cool. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just appreciate, appreciate the lengths that they went to the risks that were taken and the way it was all pulled off. It's really cool and fun. I'm not a fan of, there's an argument to be had. Like, I don't know why Tom Cruise would do the real stunt when we have CGI, right. like mm-hmm. why risk your life? when we can basically get the same effect with, with CGI. Mm-hmm. And there, there's, a, there's some merit to that argument, but there's also just like, hey, part of the fun of it is the thrill of pulling it off right. through practical effect. And you actually can't quite get something that mm-hmm. realistic without pulling it off with practical effects and actual stunt. Right. And well, sometimes you go just... back to something like this and you appreciate the value of stunts and stuntmen and practical effects and and you appreciate how far we've come in terms of pulling off cgi stuff too it's just all part of the story of cinema i guess but i think that there tom cruise proves that there's an equilibrium to be had Mm -hmm. like ensure some of it is knowing that he actually was on the side of an airplane and it wasn't cgi but also like when this next mission impossible thing comes out and he actually goes off a cliff on a motorcycle. They're gonna, they, they're gonna have set that up 
so where the, they've filmed something really cool mm-hmm. and exhilarating mm-hmm. that is just not going to be captured by the CGI version of it. And that's going to be fun. Right. So long as he doesn't kill himself in the end. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can listen to our, uh, the coward's climb. I believe it was called an early episode of sound of sanity. We talk about Alex Hanolt, the, uh, or however you say his name, Hanolt, yeah. the, the free climber, the free climber. And so we give some thoughts on where and when people should risk their lives in the pursuit of these kinds of achievements, climbing Everest, that sort of thing. And it's an interesting discussion to be had, but I do appreciate these things being done for real. I mean, there, I don't know. It's interesting. Like in the last mission impossible movie, there's a scene where they, what do you call it? They jump out of an airplane and because it's not CGI or, or by the, what am I trying to say? By the time they're done capturing it in whatever way they had to capture it, it actually looks pretty bad. Like uh, the CGI right. version would have looked more realistic than the yeah. version where they actually did it. Yeah. It was cause it was a night jump and all kinds of yeah stuff like that. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. right. It, and it's like, that's a point where I'm like, well, I might have to give us the good version. I, I might've had a better cinema experience if you'd just done the CGI. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there's a give and take. I mean, I think there's also a lot of things you can do that aren't actually risking someone's life, but are just fun flipping cars and yeah you know i'm thinking of a sequence from the james bond movie moonraker where poor old james bond is kissing a lady in a airplane and then she's like ah it's double agent and then all the bad guys instead of just shooting james bond they decide we're gonna just leave him in this airplane to die so they all jump out with his parachutes and with their parachutes and what can james bond do but jump after them free fall through the air find one of the bad guys, wrestle his parachute off, send him flying to his demise and get the parachute on. And at no point in the sequence do you ever believe that it's actually Roger Moore at all. Doesn't look like Roger Moore. <laughs> <laughs> at no point in the sequence do you are you particularly worried that whoever is doing the stunt doesn't have their own hidden parachute. Like obviously it's just a a parachute guy, whatever you call those guys, free fallers. I don't know. Parachutists? Parachutists? <laughs> it's obviously like a bunch sky of... Skydivers. Yeah, it's, 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 it's obviously they just got some skydivers who looked nothing like James Bond and had them pretend to wrestle. But there is just still something viscerally thrilling about seeing a couple guys actually plummet through the air pretending to wrestle mm-hmm. that you just can't... And then they'll cut to these dopey close-ups of Roger Moore with like a, a bad blue screen effect behind him. And it's like you just couldn't get the same thing there is just some something from from actually doing it and i do miss that being in i mean i wish marvel had more of that i wish they just had ways of incorporating that sort of thing into their cgi spectacle like here's the part where he actually had to do a little jump or had to do a thing Mm -hmm. or there's just very little of that i mean mad max fury road is an obvious example but it is probably the greatest example of the last decade or so of something that combines just about every technique you can think of to give you something really majestically visceral and exciting and there's lots of cgi augmentation but there's also lots of stunt work but there's also lots of vehicle work but there's also lots of cgi that's, that's the beauty of it that's the height of bringing it all together yeah, it's, it's that's cinema what you want. that's what you want yeah yeah and somebody like Buster Keaton is the closest analog to that in in his own day, where he's just like throwing every trick, using every trick to to do something very special. But his bag of tricks is mostly just I'm a great athlete and I'm a great engineer, so 
And and cinematically, he's great at framing. Like he knows how to frame the shot. He yeah. knows how to shoot it. He knows how to use depth of field. He just knows how to do stuff in with 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 a camera. Yeah, he's. Uh, I, I would rank him first, Lloyd second, and Chaplin third when it comes to actually just the 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 cinema of it all. The mm-hmm. the cutting. The uh, Chaplin tends to be very basic. Just we're always straight on looking at a wide shot. Keaton's going to use more wide shots than we're used to now because everything's bunch of close-ups that they <laughs> threw in a blender these days is the only way to make movies but yeah but but yeah Keaton, <laughs> Keaton's really good at it there's one other thing I wanted to say oh my favorite gag sequence was this movie does just have some funny parts that that aren't really related to stunts or anything but there's a part where he has to bust his dad out of jail and it's just this dopey extended sequence of he's, yeah. he's got a big loaf of bread <laughs> <I love laughs> that, that you've come to discover has tools that he wants to sneak to his dad a saw and stuff and so he's trying to mime to his dad his dad doesn't want to accept the bread and he does this little pantomime where he's trying to you know uh, convince his dad behind the sheriff's back that this this bread has tools it's just it's just fun it's just funny it's there's also i don't know there's a lot of humor at the beginning that might be eye-opening to people about what a What's the word that I should use? What an effeminate loser Buster Keaton is. If you, if you ever had a any doubt that they had categories of uh, like, that guy's gay, then back then, <laughs> this movie gets a lot of its mileage in its first act out of Buster Keaton's dad thinks he's going to be a manly man. But instead, he is. He's kind of gay. He's, and now dad's really ashamed and trying to fix his gayness. Right. <laughs> And it has all these jokes, like where his dad turns to his friend uh, after Butcher Keaton's done something foppish and says, "If you say what you're thinking, I'll strangle you." Or the son, or the friend hands him a gun and says, "No jury will convict you." <laughs> yes, that made me laugh. <laughs> that's, good. Uh, that's one of my favorites. I, it, it, I also just want to emphasize: if you have any love of Americana or of history or of anything, it's so much fun to watch these movies. I think because they are basically now a hundred years old. And you are seeing a lost world. And I, I just I just find that incredible. I just like to look at the backgrounds. I like to look at the costumes, the outfits. It's just like we have an actual Flapper Girl in this movie from the time of Flapper Girls, which is now 100 years ago, 100 years ago. And she's just doing her Flapper thing. And she's not faking a Flapper thing. No. She's an actual Flapper. She's an actual Flapper. Yeah. and. There's just so much of that sort of thing in here. Just like every couch, every background prop, everything. Also interesting to see. Also fun to see. It's really interesting for me, a sociological perspective. Just the relationships between these characters, the way that the dad treats the son. It's just it's 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 endlessly fascinating to speculate. Kind of how much of these relationships are sort of exaggerated for comedic effect, and how much of them are just the way that people understood relationships back then, both romantically and paternally. And it's just, it's just really endlessly to me, at least interesting to, I mean, you're watching an actual archeological artifact. Like this is, this is just somebody beamed something from a hundred years ago into your living room. You can pull it up on a streaming service and you can just see like, this is (laughs) what people thought. This is what they valued. This is what they were interested in. This is what they thought was funny. And so a lot of times, even when these movies don't still play, I still find them interesting as artifacts. But this one, fortunately, 
does both. These are everybody wore hats. There's like this extended stupid sequence in this thing where it's like, what hat will Buster Keaton wear? Well, he can't wear the one that he came with because that's gay. Right. So dad's got to get him in a new hat, but he wants this other hat that hilariously doesn't fit on his head properly right. and he doesn't know <laughs> Even it. gayer. Yeah. <laughs> his dad keeps throwing off that hat. They try different hats. They actually try the hat that Buster Keaton was famous for, the, stra- the flat straw hat. And then his dad's like, nah. So that's a little meta joke from the, from the time that you might not recognize as a joke now. Drops him off at the tailor and says, fit him for work clothes. And then he's going to come out looking like even more of a dandy in his own way, mm-hmm. you know? And the That's little, hilarious. The little caption will say, like, it's because his girlfriend actually picked out <laughs> the clothes. And so it's just, yeah, I, I, I find it all really interesting and, and kind of nostalgic and that weird, whatever the word is for when you have nostalgia for something that you never actually experienced. Just like every Christmas, I get nostalgic for that one horse open sleigh ride that I've never taken and for chestnuts that I've never roasted over an open fire. I can, I can get pretty nostalgic for simple time of boys and girls just uh, dancing the Charleston and falling in love and going on little escapades. I'm sure that world never existed, but, or, or just the, the steamboat of it all, the kind of Southern, uh, Rivertown Americana of it all. So if you have any soft spot for any of those kinds of things, then I think you might even get more out what, of it. What, us living in a steamboat river town? Yeah, <clears throat> exactly. Everyone in Evansville. Evansville should do a big steamboat bill, a junior, like, on the water thing where they have a screen and they project it and people... Put a screen on a barge? Put a, yeah, there you go, on a barge. Yep. I like it. Let's make it happen. And it can be a double feature with the other film we watched, <laughs> Steamboat Willie. <laughs> Obviously, play his, his Buster Keaton's like the name that everybody calls him in this movie actually is Willie. Is Willie, yeah. So Steamboat Willie, pretty obviously a. Although maybe that's interesting because they both came out the same year. So did Disney have time? He must have. Hmm. Yeah. The title of this film may be a parody. I just pulled up the Steamboat Willie wiki. Title of the film may be a parody of the Buster Keaton film Steamboat Bill Jr. Itself a reference to a song by. Hmm. Collins, Arthur Collins. Okay, so there's a famous song called Steamboat Bill. It's probably the song that, if I had to guess, that Disney, that uh, both that Mickey is whistling at the beginning of the short and that Buster Ke- the whoever orchestrated the music for this, the version of uh, use uh, that, we, that we saw of Buster Keaton. This is, Wikipedia says the title of the film may be a parody of Buster Keaton's Steamboat Bill Jr. Yes. Okay. That's what you said. Okay, okay. Uh, Sorry, just kept it up here. That's weird. But the thing about Steamboat Bill or Steamboat Willie, the Mickey Mouse cartoon, if you've never seen it, probably everybody's familiar with the image. It's one of those psychotic old black and white cartoons where two things are happening. Number one, sociopathic violence towards other creatures. And number two, hey, audience, we can combine sound now. So here's some sounds. And they combine they sync up to things that are happening right. on the screen. So there's a lot of things where the the boat's just going and it's kind of chugging along, and you're supposed to be impressed by that. So so this this is a mo- example of a movie that is does take a bit of homework. You actually have to put yourself in the mindset of somebody who's like, whoa, these sounds are matching up, <laughs> and someone who's psychotic, <laughs> and someone who loves to mutilate animals <laughs> such that they will make big band noises which if you didn't know if a goat eats 
the sheet music for Turkey in the Straw, then what you do is you pop its mouth open and you turn its tail like a crank and Turkey in the Straw will actually come out of it. And that's the least psychotic thing that Mickey does. No, you can also strangle chickens in such a way as to... As to <laughs> and, and grab a sow. Uh, uh, <laughs> At a certain point, there's these piglets that are feeding from their mother, and he starts yanking their tails, and they start squealing. And then he grabs the, the mother pig, turns her upside down, and starts playing her milk organs to make music. And she has a horrified, violated expression on her face, and I don't know what to say about this. <laughs> this short. There's no strange, bizarre innuendo in any of it whatsoever. No, no. Well, if you've ever seen, me and Ben were, Ben mentioned the Betty Boop cartoons. If you've ever seen those early Flesher Betty Boop cartoons, they are insane. They are, yeah. A, very sexual. I mean, Betty Boop is a very sexual character, but they, they, they weren't like just implying that. Like, that's Did what, it happen on accident? Yeah. No. No. They're also about the horror of existence. Right. And about you finding some amusement from that. Kind of like The Office. No, I'm just kidding. It's not like The Office. There's one where Betty Boop gets kidnapped by a cult, and it's just, I, I, I watch it most Halloweens, actually, because it is just <laughs> seven minutes of skeletons dancing and weird guys in, like, uh, uh, monk robes coming out of closets. It's just like, it's one of the best creepy haunted house kind of things I've ever seen, and it's just this dumb Betty Boop, but something about it being so old and so black and white and so weird and psychotic and just from someone's id just pure id just like splashed on the the some paper and ink yeah uh it's 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 weird man i watched a lot of those as a kid and it's weird they kind of hypnotize you they really do they're very repetitive cartoons like that's their that's their deal repeat the gag six times the seventh will be something different and lead to the next right gag but you repeat it six times before you get there yeah, so which actually kind of isn't, isn't unlike the Buster Keaton thing we watched. Um, sure. And it's not unlike some of the ways that we do our comedy on. Oh, yes. What? We, we are downstream of all this. <laughs> we, uh, we like repetitive. It's not funny because it's actually funny. It's funny because it's not funny, but we keep doing it. We like that kind of thing. Until it gets funny. Until yeah, it gets funny. Do. And Until then it's it, funny that we've done it so many times. And, and then, and then we do it past that. It becomes not funny. And then, you keep going. <laughs> because we have great courage and skill and heart, we push past back that into the funny again. So I like those kinds of things. But, but yeah, uh, if you like psychotic, old, crazy cartoons, I'll, I'll tell you what both of these Steamboat movies will do. They will, they will, if, you're, if you're me, at least, they will make you mourn the state of current cinema. Because it's like, you can do so much stuff that like we're so bound to... The way that we think a camera has to work, the way that we think animation have to work, the kind of stories that we tell, mm-hmm. what we think is realistic, what we think is not realistic. It's like you, you watch some of this stuff from an earlier time or from a different time and you realize, man, we have a pretty magical medium on our hands and there's a lot of different things that you can do with it. And we don't do that many. We tell a certain kind of narrative in a certain kind of way. We do certain kinds of comedies, we do certain kind of dramas, we do certain kind of action movies, but man, you can be so visually bold, so abstract if you want to. You can do different kinds of narratives. It 
cinema just doesn't get used. It's like it's like you have a piano that can play. You can play so many things on it, but everybody just wants to play chopsticks or heart and soul. And I like chopsticks and I like heart and soul. But man, what about Chopin? What about Mozart? Ben, any final thoughts about either of these classics of steamboat cinema? Well, even though the latter was psychotic, it was fun to watch. It's pretty ingenious. <laughs> I don't know what to say. <laughs> they're both they're both fun to watch. Yes. I mean, Buster Keaton has recommended more. <laughs> Buster Keaton is, they're both short. I mean, Buster <laughs> Keaton's like an hour 10, Steamboat Willie's seven. So, Jake, final thoughts about either Steamboat masterpiece of cinema? You'll be... At the very least, glad. <clears throat> at the very least, you'll be glad that you have watched them. Yes, I think if they're if either one of them is homework, they're good, short, fun homework, and I think you have. Uh, it's like any classic, right? So Mark Twain's famous for saying a classic is something that you want to have read or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. But you don't you don't want to read it, but you want to have read it. So at the very least, you can spend a little under two hours and have watched something that you'll be glad to have watched, and maybe you'll be glad to watch it at the same time and discover something about yeah. yourself mm-hmm. and about the genre that we yeah 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 i mean it, the the investment versus the payoff is such that i'd say go ahead and invest because you're not going to lose much at worst it won't quite connect it'll feel like a little bit of homework but it'll be good homework and it'll be short homework and it'll be painless homework but at best you might just really connect you might find yourself really liking little buster keaton my wife Strangely enough, maybe not strangely enough, uh, Buster Keaton reached across those hundred years and shook her hand. and She was happy to make his acquaintance. She's now watched four or five Buster Keatons. And then I tried to show her Harold Lloyd. and She hated his guts <laughs> for some reason <laughs> that I, I can't understand. We tried. Oh, it's too bad. We tried to watch something and she's like, oh, no, I don't like this guy. And then we tried to watch Safety Last and we got we finally got to the building sequence and she was biting her nails like everybody does. But. She, at the end, she was just like, I don't like, she's, at the end, what she actually said is, I think I'm a Buster Keaton woman. Um, something about Buster okay. Keaton, but something about Buster Keaton's earnest, whatever, appeals to her much more than the kind of conniving, I guess she would say, of Harold, like, Harold Lloyd's like. Kind well, of, at the end of the day, if, if you tried, like I did, safety last on your family and found that was actually a pretty fun, enjoyable night at the movies and un- unobjectionable. Give 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 Steamboat Bill Jr. a shot and just see what happens. I mean, it could be a lot of fun. And <laughs> yeah, well, and kids are weird. Sometimes they're not laughing, but they're just absorbed. Like I never laughed at the Looney Tunes. I was just—it's like you were saying about the old Betty Boop cartoons. It's like you're just kind of hypnotized into this—you are—this world of violence, and <laughs> 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 weird, surreal. <laughs> Well, Buster Keaton is better than that anyway. Dada. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, uh, Buster Keaton's kind of, the thing about somebody like Buster Keaton is he, or Chaplin or, or Lloyd, but I think maybe especially Keaton is that there, there is a certain, certain sort of solemn childlike quality to him. I mean, he is that kid who is struggling up a hill trying to carry a bucket of water and it's too big for him. Like he just, and it's, he's taking it really seriously and he wants to accomplish it, but the water's spilling out. Like that's just, Buster Keaton's whole deal is is that dynamic, and kids like that. They relate to it. He's a very relatable guy for for a guy that's so so sort of cold and abstract in his way. He's actually somebody that kids can 
can get behind. Like they, they get it. They, they understand mm -hmm. who yeah. he is, what he's trying to do. And I think that the, oftentimes they like his stoicism because <laughs> kids kind of live in that world. Absurd, painful things happen to me. I don't understand them, but I just keep chugging along trying to get what I want. That's, yep. that's kind of the world of a kid. And Buster Keaton understands that. So give this movie a shot. And I'll tell you what else. Well, I'll tell you what you should never shoot. <laughs> if you have a gun, do not use it on Jeffrey. Don't shoot Jeffrey. Our patron choice award of awesomeness winner today. Mm. And why shouldn't you shoot Jeffrey, guys? He's a good dude. Yeah. If you were dude. caught in a don't shoot good, don't shoot good. Dudes. Do not shoot good dudes. <laughs> don't, don't shoot bad dudes. Unless the government yeah. is paying you, don't shoot anybody. That's right. <laughs> but if the government is paying you, shoot them all. Shoot them all, yeah. <laughs> Throw them in the gulags. Yep. Who cares? Yeah. The government's behind you. Yeah. yeah. If Jeffrey were in caught in a hurricane, he would ride a facade out of town or something just very stoically. Yeah. He, he would not be phased. I, I, I think that's true. I think if he saw uh, Mrs. Jeffrey, if there, <laughs> if there is such a creature, I think there is. A, yeah, there is. On a, an opposite boat, he'd swing across and she'd awkwardly sort of be strangling his neck as he carried her mm -hmm. heroically onto the boat that's not sinking. Yeah, he would do it. Yeah, I think so. All right. Well, folks, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe and... All that stuff. We we could use a few more five star reviews, especially after the debacle of me and Ben reviewing Nope and not understanding it, and only one of us having watched it. Some people were not happy about that and <laughs> reviewed accordingly. So if you were happy about that, be sure to review accordingly. Because actually we did understand Nope perfectly. Only one of us needed to have seen it. The one that saw it was correct. It's a stupid movie. And uh, people who like it lack understanding. So thank you for listening. With that to... olive branch. <laughs> <laughs> With that olive branch. <laughs> uh, thank you for listening to Sanity at the Movies. Uh, how is Jake going to handle this? It's a silent movie. Until next time, 